You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you today. I already met several uh, new friends, and uh, if we've not met before, my name is Mike Lovely. I get to be the lead pastor here, and um, it's a joy to serve. And I I was struck even in the early service this morning um, by... um, just what God has been doing through the years, uh, through this church. Um, and I, I've gotten to be a part of it for just nearly 10 years now, uh, but it's so uh, encouraging uh, to see a young man like John who grew up in this church, was formed in this church, shaped here, um, and go on and become a disciple maker. And one of the signs of church health uh, is when your church is producing disciple makers, and uh, that's encouraging. And you can see that reflected in our staff team uh, with Jace and Jenna and Chris and uh, John, and there are just so many others. Uh, some of you uh, in the room today serving alongside us as volunteers, but you were formed and shaped by this church, and some of the people who shaped you and, and formed you and discipled you are here as well. And so... Um, Sometimes in ministry, um, I find myself a bit overwhelmed by the fact that, um, as John said about even himself, that by the grace of God, I get to just be a part of this, and it's awesome what God is doing, not just here locally, but around the world. We have other missions partners with us today, and uh, to know that we get to partner together. And when you give, even to just the general budget of the church, uh, you are you are helping uh, evangelize the lost all around the world, uh, so don't don't lose sight of that. A couple of things, real quickly. Uh, today is a bit of an unusual day uh, in that we're going to be observing both of the church's ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so, uh, at the end of the message, we'll observe the Lord's Supper. And I just want to maybe clarify for those of you who are guests with us today. Uh, that you do not have to be a member of First Baptist Church to participate with us. We practice what uh, in church leadership we often call close communion, not a closed communion. So you don't have to be a member of our church, but it is important to us that your testimony be one of faith in Christ. And so uh, if you would choose not to, that's perfectly fine. No one's going to single you out or anything like that. Uh, But that will come a little bit later in the service, and that will be followed by uh, baptism. Chris mentioned our discovery lunch. And so what's going to happen at the close of the service uh, is what we call organized mass chaos, okay? This room will be transformed into a dining area, and so we have some designated people uh, who are ready to jump in and kind of lead the way on that. So one of the most important things you can do is make sure you've got your kids and make sure you've got your stuff, okay? Your kids and your stuff, uh, and kind of shift out of the way. We're not trying to run anybody off today or anything like that, but there will be a pretty big shift in this space at the close of the service, so just... Uh, be looking forward to that. Well, we're in John chapter 7 this morning. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to John chapter 7 in our continuing study through the Gospel of John. We actually started this study back last December. Uh, That took us up uh, through the spring, and at uh, the beginning of summer, we took a break. We paused for a study in the Psalms, and now we've returned to the Gospel of John. 
Um, you ever think about this question, especially in light of the last several years that we've uh, all shared in this crazy mixed up world in which we live? Do we really know what we think we know? I know there have always been conspiracy theorists and there have always been conspiracies related to all different sorts of things. Um, maybe that's you. Maybe you've got your you know, tinfoil hat at the house or whatever. I, uh, th- that's not what this is really about as much as just, but we've been constantly asking ourselves, do I really know what I think I know? Like I, in, in preparing for this morning's message even, I was thinking about uh, over the course of my life, all of the firmly held opinions that I've had at different times, only to discover in that particular area, I had no clue what I was talking about. Uh, anybody else have that <laughs> a shared experience? Like, especially when you're younger, you know, like you think you've kind of got the world by the tail and you kind of got a lot of stuff figured out and then you realize one day, like, I don't have a clue. And, and this was especially magnified for me when it came to ministry. Because when, when you're young in ministry, a lot of times you think, man, I'm going to set the world on fire. I'm going to like, I, you know, I've just kind of got this thing figured out. I've got, you know, all these. And then you realize how little you really knew and, and as you mature and you grow older, you realize how much you have yet to learn. I mean, think about this. This is how naive I was going into ministry years ago, 30 plus years ago now. I thought, I literally thought everybody was going to like me all the time. Can you imagine that? I mean, I was a pretty likable guy through school, never had any enemies, never gotten any fights, anything like that. So I'm just thinking, everybody's just going to like Pastor Mike all the time, right? And... It didn't take me long into my first pastorate to realize that is not true. <laughs> that is not true. I also was so naive to think that whenever we institute change or anything like that, because clearly it'll be a great idea, whatever it is we're going to change, people will just want, they will just embrace that like it's the best thing since sliced bread, right? Doesn't work that way. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. There's just so many things. I mean, I think about even recently, things that I was pretty convinced of, that I've discovered is just not true. I was convinced just two or three months ago that the Texas Rangers were one of the best teams in baseball. <laughs> I was. I thought they were finally playing up to their potential and that they would surely make the playoffs. Now, that's kind of in question, right, after an eight-game skid. The problem with the, the erroneous opinions that we hold many times is that we don't really know what we think we know. So often in life, we think we've got certain things figured out. I mean, you think about this. Just do a quick historical glance back, and you will discover that at different times, there have been pretty large numbers of people who have been convinced that the world was going to come to an end on a particular day. Only to discover they were wrong. They didn't know what they were talking about. There have been false prophets through the years who were convinced that they had pinpointed the day on which Christ would return. Only to be proven wrong. Some of them multiple times. And it's amazing to me to think that multiple times they could convince more and more people that I got it wrong last time, but I think I've got it figured out this time, right? And some, I mean, it's been like a whole series of these things only to die and go on and the Lord still has yet to return. So do we really know what we think we know? Now the educated, sophisticated Jerusalemites in Jesus' day thought they knew a lot too. They thought they knew that a man could not possibly have skilled, insightful understanding of the scriptures without studying in one of the important rabbinical schools or under a famous rabbi of that day. The sophisticated Jews also thought they knew that when the Messiah came, he would come and and have unknown origins, that no one would know where he came from. He would just kind of like burst onto the scene. He'd be like, wow, look at this. 
And, and so they were also fairly certain that they knew where Jesus came from. It's understandable. They knew that he was the, the son of a carpenter from Nazareth who had his base of operations in Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so the sad reality for them is that they were wrong about all of those things that they thought they knew. And the underlying reason for their errors in all three cases was essentially the same. They had their eyes fixed on popular opinion, tradition sometimes, not on God, not on his word, and not on his will. Unless you think you're much different from uh, the sophisticated Jewish leaders of that day, we can do the same thing sometimes. I mean, I've got to be honest with you. There were some times early in my ministry where I had some firmly held opinions and, and some, some, even some beliefs that I, I thought, man, I've got, this, I've got this nailed down, only to discover that I didn't know nearly as much as I thought I knew. And the more I studied God's word and the more I dug in and the more I, 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 you know, I allowed myself to, to open my eyes to the truths of scripture, the more I realized that you really don't have this all figured out. That's why I often say people who scare me the most in today's world are people who think they've got God all figured out. It's kind of scary to me. And so we see a little bit of that here in John chapter 7. And we're going to pick it up in verse 25, read down through verse 36. So I hope that you'll follow along with me as I read this morning. It says, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Does that sound a little bit like a conspiracy theory? As they ask that question, But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught them in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I mean, clearly, it was known what Jesus could do, that he was unique. He was different in every sense of the word. So verse 32 says, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things among them, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So I want us to unpack this morning. As we look at verses 25 through 27, first of all, I want you to notice the difference, the distinction between tradition and the word of God. Tradition and the word of God. Now, there's a distinct difference between tradition, traditionalism. Uh, you know, sometimes I think it was, I can't even recall who said this initially, but it was basically this, is that tradition uh, is the living faith of dead men. Traditionalism is the dead faith of living men. Okay, and so I would guess that, that all of us have some things that we hold to, cling to, and if we were really pressed on the matter to say, where in scripture do you find that? Do, do you find a, a biblical basis for that particular belief? We would have a rough time. We would have a tough time finding that in Scripture. So many of us have things that we kind of cling to because that's what we've always experienced. That's what we've come to know. That's where we feel most 
comfortable. That's typically the case. And so that, that's kind of what we're finding here. Uh, and so you see that. It's interesting that the citizens of Jerusalem do get one thing right, which the rest of the crowd doesn't necessarily know. They know that the authorities in Jerusalem want to kill Jesus. The crowd from outside of Jerusalem, the less sophisticated crowd, thought Jesus was crazy to even suggest such a thing. But the people of Jerusalem were the people in the know. Right? They knew the deadly design the leadership was seeking to carry out. Now, sometimes it's dangerous to be a person who is in the know. It was the poet Alexander Pope who said, a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. Um, and you see that pretty regularly these days. Right? Uh, it's always interesting to me to see people who have little, if any, knowledge of Scripture, and yet they're like quoting Scripture online and totally misapplying it, pulling it out of context, and those sorts of things. Just a little bit of knowledge can be a dangerous thing. And that was the case for the people of Jerusalem. They were stunned to see Jesus speaking openly in the temple, and they wondered if perhaps the authorities had maybe figured out that he really was the Messiah, the long-awaited one. It didn't occur to them that a higher authority was actually protecting Jesus and ensuring that he was able to teach in the temple despite being opposed by the Sanhedrin and the priests. So they immediately reject the idea that Jesus could be the Messiah based on two things. Now track with me here. They knew where Jesus came from. Okay, they knew where Jesus came from. And it was their thinking that when the Christ appears, no one will know where he is from. So on the surface of it, the logic of their reasoning, it goes like this. Premise number one, when Messiah comes, no one will know where he's from. Premise number two, Jesus is clearly from Nazareth. So conclusion, Jesus can't be the Messiah, right? But it turns out that both of those premises were deeply flawed. Why did the people of Jerusalem think that no one would know where the Messiah would come from? Did they get that premise from Scripture? No. No, in fact, the scripture said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, according to the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, where it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, you are too, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And further, the scriptures connected the ministry of Messiah to the land of Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, according to Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. So the people of Jerusalem made two errors. They accepted human tradition as, as, as an equally valid source of revelation about Messiah, and it was human tradition of the rabbis that said that no one would know where the Messiah was from. So tradition, understand this, and you may come from a tradition that says tradition is of equal value to Scripture itself, but we know that that is not the case. Tradition is not equally valid to Scripture. And the second error they made was based on prejudice. They knew about Messiah's connection to Bethlehem, perhaps, which is just five miles uh, away from Jerusalem, had been the birthplace of King David. But apparently, they hadn't really understood Isaiah's prophecy connecting Messiah to Galilee. Why not? Because Galilee, in their mind, was far away, infested with deplorable Gentiles, lacking in culture, lacking in sophistication. So they were wrong when they thought that the Messiah would come from nowhere, appearing suddenly without anyone knowing where he was from, and that he would come from Bethlehem and his light would, would shine in Galilee. 
So you see how, how this can happen. Tradition versus the word of God. I mean, it can even be true today for us sometimes. You have things maybe that, that you thought you fully understood and knew, especially as it relates to eschatology. You get into a conversation about the end times and the timing of Christ's return and all those things. There are some people that are fully convinced of their position and think they've got it all figured out and all those things. But trust me, there's some of the best scholars of our day, people who have literally given their entire lives to studying these things. They don't have it all figured out. They just don't. And there's a reason for that. Because then secondly, I want us to notice in verses 28 and 29, what we think versus what we know. So Jesus didn't directly address their ignorance of these scriptures, but he did address their flawed reasoning in another way. And this is interesting. In verses 28 and 29, again, it says, So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So we can read Jesus' comments there in a couple of different ways. First, we could read his response as though it's dripping with irony. Okay, so you know me, and you know where I come from, do you? Really? Well, despite what you think you know, I have not come of my own accord. In other words, I'm not really from where you think I'm from, okay, <laughs> ultimately. Or we could read it the, the way that it's translated here in the ESV a little more. It's a simple statement of concession that sets up the contrast of the next thing that he says. In other words, true enough, you know that I'm the son of a carpenter from Nazareth. I grant you that much, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and you do not know him. So in the end, it ultimately really doesn't matter which way we read this. The end conclusion is essentially the same. They shouldn't be so quick to boast of what they know because they don't actually know nearly as much as they think they know. Most importantly, whether or not they know Jesus' hometown, they don't know his heavenly father. They don't know God. Now think of what a shocking statement this is and how offensive it would be to these religious leaders, many of them, people who lived in the very shadow of the temple. How could this upstart, untrained, wannabe Messiah, so-called rabbi from Nazareth, dare to come into the temple and tell those of us who live in constant view of the, the magnificent glory of the temple itself, how could he declare that we don't know God? And their reaction to that insult was pretty swift. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. I happen to know that there's, that there's likely some people in the room today, and you would say, just at first glance, you would say, you know, I, I kind of have a problem with religious people. Maybe, maybe you're here this morning, and maybe you've just been wrestling with, with, with faith. You've been wrestling with uh, the validity of Scripture itself, whether all this is just a, a bunch of made-up myths and, and all these things. What, what, what is this whole thing? Is, did Jesus really die, and did he come back to life? And, and you're wrestling. And so you've encountered some, some pretty toxic religious people or people who claim to be religious. And so understand this. Jesus had more problems with religious people during his earthly ministry than probably anyone else. You'll notice the constant confrontations, as it were, with the religious people of the day, the religious elites who thought they had it all figured out. So if you have a problem with religious people in that sense, 
then, then you're in good company because Jesus did too. I mean, they were constantly coming at him. The Pharisees especially, they were the ones who were constantly blowing the whistle, throwing the flag because he had violated some man-made law that they had attached to uh, God's law. And it was these, these sorts of conflicts. And then finally, I want us to look at our plans versus God's plans. They were seeking to arrest him, but they couldn't. This begins a section that exposes, I think, the vast difference between our plans and God's plans. Here's the thing. We think we know more than we know. And with that, we also think we control more than we actually control. And so we make plans, and then we find our plans frustrated, and we naturally wonder why. And the same thing is happening to these powerful, well-connected Jerusalem Jews. They cannot control what Jesus is doing. In fact, they can't even fully understand it. They, they can't fully understand what's happening here. So here again, we see this difference between the educated elites who think they know and who are confused and helpless before Jesus and the common people who seem to be more open to considering what they were seeing Jesus do and who often, uh, more often responded with a measure of faith. Because you're finding as we make our way through John's gospel, uh, the, the crowd begins to separate more and more. Remember, there are those people who said, he's got a demon, he's out of his mind. Now we're finding here that there, there are some who believed in him. They believed in, in, in Jesus. Uh, and so uh, these, the, the Pharisees, especially the chief priests, they responded to the wonder and the growing faith of the crowds by sending officers to arrest him. They think they're finally going to put an end to this troublemaker, this rabble-rouser. But Jesus has other plans. God has other plans. Jesus knows they're sending officers to arrest him and that they will not succeed yet. But soon they will. Because if we continue forward in John's gospel here, you'll discover that in roughly six months, the same group of leaders essentially will send soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him and take him to the cross. But for now, Jesus says, I will be with you a little longer. When that time is up and not before, Jesus says, then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And so think about this. The Jewish religious leaders will fail in this attempt to arrest and kill Jesus. In six months, when they do succeed, their actions will only fulfill Jesus' plans and lead to his exaltation to the Father's right hand, who is Lord of all. When we make plans based on partial knowledge, driven by self-interest, Ignoring the will of God, seeking to please or protect ourselves and our agenda, contradicting the word of God, we are being foolish or worse, we are working against our own good and for our own ultimate destruction. Jesus tells these religious leaders that when he departs, they'll look for him and be unable to find him. And even though he told them that he'll be returning to him who sent them, they don't get it. They don't get it. They can only think in, in, in temporal terms. You're the son of a carpenter. They accuse him of planning on, on going to the Jews of the dispersion or even to the Greeks, meaning the Greek-speaking Gentiles of the Roman Empire. And what is fascinating about this whole exchange is how precisely both Jesus' words and their words are fulfilled in the providence and purposes of God. It's pretty amazing. 
Because after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the religious leaders do seek for him. They think they're trying to find his body, convinced that he's still dead. They search everywhere, but they can't find him. And the fact that neither the Jewish religious leaders who conspired to have Jesus killed nor the Romans who crucified him could ever find Jesus' body is one of the most compelling pieces of evidence for the resurrection itself. So they looked and they couldn't find him. And then their reaction to Jesus' words was to speculate that he might go to the Jews of the dispersion and that if he was rejected by them too, uh, he might then turn to teaching the Greeks. This is, in fact, what Jesus would do. After Jesus rose again and ascended back to the Father, he didn't cease to exist or cease to be actively engaged in teaching and redeeming people. No. In fact, that's still happening today. That's why we have mission partners. That's why we do what we do. Because that teaching is still going forth and people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And so think about this. Luke begins the book of Acts with these words. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up. Okay, that's, that's what we would call the ascension. His first book, of course, was the Gospel of Luke, uh, for which it was named. Okay, and so by saying that his gospel covers all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up, Luke is introducing the book of Acts as a continuing record of all that Jesus continued to do and teach after he was taken up. And what does the book of Acts record? The gospel of Jesus Christ moves from Jerusalem out to the Jews of the dispersion, starting with Pentecost, continuing through the ministry of the apostles until the focus then shifts from Jews to Gentiles after the Jews of the dispersion largely reject Jesus as Messiah, just as the leadership in Jerusalem had done. So the Jewish leaders were more right than they knew. They didn't know what they knew. Jesus was going to go to the Jews of the dispersion. He was going to turn to teach the Greeks the salvation which they despised and rejected because it did not confirm and establish their power and their positions of prestige would be embraced by Gentiles instead. And I have to wonder how many people reject Jesus, turn away from the kingdom of God because Jesus will not give them what they want but insists on offering them what they need instead. You ever notice how many people have somehow formed and fashioned a God in their mind, a God of their own making? And they will often say things like, this isn't fair. If I were God, I would not allow good people to get cancer. If I were God, I wouldn't allow good people to have auto accidents. If I were God. So what they've done is they've started to form this God of their own making can't do that with God. <laughs> you can't do that with God. And of course, some so-called Christian teachers have made lots of money promising people that Jesus will give them exactly what they want if only they will have enough faith to ask for it. We call that the prosperity gospel. It seems to me that these people need to reread the gospel of John. Because Jesus continually rejects the world's agenda and earthly visions of wealth and power. He insists that his kingdom is radically different and that his agenda will not serve the desires of those who long for wealth or power or prestige in this life. Think about why some of these people were so confused. 
Think about why the teachings of Jesus just kind of rubbed them the wrong way. Because they envisioned a Messiah who would come and set up an earthly kingdom, overthrow Roman rule, and they would get to be a part of that earthly kingdom. And it would mean power and prestige and all those things. Why do you suppose even some of his disciples said, or the mother of two of his disciples came and said, I would really like it if my boys in your kingdom could set one on your right hand and one on your left. She says it's just wrong-headed thinking. So how do we respond to this Jesus? He challenges the religious experts. He's rejected by those in positions of authority. He says confusing things. He challenges us to reconsider what, what we know versus what we think we know. He does great things, but not in the way that we might expect it. He will not follow our plans, our priorities, but insists on following his Father's will. Even if it leads him to a cross. Why do you think some of his closest followers turned and ran as he died upon the cross? This isn't what I was expecting. This isn't what I signed up for, a religious leader who gives up his life. Oh. Perhaps the best approach would be to follow those who were not looking at Jesus in terms of what they expected him to do for them, but in terms of what he actually did. They had the insight to ask the question here, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Jesus didn't come into the world to simply bring an end to poverty and suffering. He didn't overthrow the Roman tyranny. He didn't even give everyone free bread for life. What did he do? He turned water into wine, healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years, fed 5,000 men plus women and children, raised the dead, gave sight to the blind, walked on water, calmed a violent storm. Then he went to the cross and he took on the sins of the world willingly, lovingly. He died as an offering for sin, was buried, remained under the power of death for a time, and then broke the bonds of death for all time. He rose again victorious and alive forevermore. We worship a living Savior today. He returned to his Father and sat down in victory to reign in glory at the Father's right hand. He has made perfect and everlasting purification for sin, and he has overthrown death and hell forever. What more could we really need? One day, he's coming again. When he comes, will he find us trusting him, waiting for him, or will he find us making excuses and whining about how he won't bless our agenda? Will he come and find us disbelieving and trying to live according to our own wisdom? Or will he find us worshiping and together saying, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. If we could together bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment this morning as we begin preparation for the Lord's Supper. In the biblical teaching on the observance of the Lord's Supper, one of the things that we're told is that in this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So my question to you today is simply this, do you know Jesus? Not just as a great teacher, not just as uh, a revolutionary leader, 
I'm just a good man. But do you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord? See, Jesus didn't come, live a perfect, sinless life, die a cruel death simply to make good people better. He came to make spiritually dead people alive. If you're here today, you might consider yourself religious, but you cannot point to a time in your life when you turn from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ. And I invite you to do that today. It's an acknowledgement that you can't save yourself. You can't possibly be good enough to save yourself. The essence of the gospel is that Christ died in our place. We call that the substitutionary atonement. He paid a debt he didn't owe so that we could live a life we do not deserve. So Heavenly Father, today we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have sovereignly ordained in your word that we can study the life the ministry, the teachings, the conversations that our Lord Jesus had while here on this earth. I pray that if there's anyone here today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, today would be the day. They would come to faith and acknowledge once and for all, I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. we love you. We thank you for our time together here. Now as we continue to celebrate the gospel in such a vivid form, we thank you. We praise you. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com. Thank you.